Listener Production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hi, Adam. Uh, just wondering, what's your views on companies outsourcing to address the labour shortage in Australia? And I'm also keen to understand how you think they should be structured if they go down the outsourcing path. Thanks. Thank you for your question, uh, anonymous caller who who didn't give their name, but I'm I'm sure there was good reason. Uh, so this it's a really good question that the outsourcing question that that's been a relevant issue probably for 15, 20 years, uh, certainly in Australia uh, and in Western countries. But it's I think during COVID and with the whole sort of remote work uh, wave that we've seen. The notion of outsourcing has become really interesting and, and, and work from home is probably an issue for another another episode. But the one, the reason why working from home, and, and Scott Galloway talks about this a lot, the one reason why working from the home is potentially really risky for people is if you can work from, uh, from Frankston or from Mornington or from uh, Chatswood or wherever you are, it makes it a lot easier for the company to outsource the role uh, to Bangalore or to um, Shenzhen or to the Philippines or to the UK, US. So when you start outsourcing, when you take a role out of the office, it, it really changes, and it shouldn't. And the, and the argument against that is, well, people can outsource now what they would if they could. I think the difference is when you can't see someone, uh, and when you lose line of sight, when you're working remotely with someone, it, it's a much smaller leap to then take that job, not simply away from the office, but away from the country. And, and Australia is obviously a really high cost jurisdiction. Uh, our wages, so our average many cases, obviously it depends on the sector, but I think the average Australian wage is upwards of sixty or $70,000 now. And the averages are impacted by really high earners as well. But uh, if you look at the average wage you get in, in other countries, it's in, in lower cost countries can be ten or 20000 So uh, the notion of outsourcing from a cost perspective is one that clearly makes sense for a lot of businesses. If we look at, look at our business, Luxury Escapes, we, ten, we have certainly dabbled uh, with offshore uh, in areas like contact centre. Uh, we, we've tended to, we've pretty much brought everything back in-house, uh, as in back in-house in, in Australia, so in Melbourne and Sydney largely. And we've got some remote workers who, who do sales, but, but travel sales is a little bit different to, to other contact centres. Uh, but so what we what we tend to do is we, we like to have people in the office, uh, not always, but like to have people in the office or, or certainly in the region. So we want an Australian customer call, speaking to an Australian. We want an American customer speaking to an American. We have our, an Indian team, but they they, they um, work with our Indian customers and New Zealand team who focuses on New Zealand customers. So we'd like to keep it local to local. So caller to the person who's, who's calling in speaks to somebody in their region. Uh, that's probably unusual. I think most, if not, not all, but a good proportion of businesses are outsourcing a lot of labour, outsourcing a lot of contact centres. Something called BPO. Uh, a BPO is essentially uh, an outsourced uh, call centre, which is often based for Australians, often based in the Philippines. So there's 
some really big call centers based in the Philippines, do, do actually a really good job. Uh, often the, the, the English uh, spoken by a Filipino call center is, is on par almost with, with many sort of local people. But what you don't get when you outsource a call center is you, you lose a bit of that cultural nuance, uh, which can make it a little bit harder. So it really depends on what, what we look at is it depends on how, uh, how rusted on or how hard a sale it is. So if, if you're in the, for example, if you run a telecommunications company, if you run a power company, if you run a bank, it's really hard to switch between providers. So virtually almost everyone you speak to in, in those businesses is based overseas. Because ultimately, if you've, you've got an issue with your mobile phone and you call someone, you're probably not going to switch mobile phone providers because you've had one bad experience with one person in the Philippines. If it was bad, it uh, may not be. Uh, by the same token, if you look at our business, which is selling travel, it's so competitive, so easy to switch, so easy to go to a booking.com or an Airbnb or an Expedia. Uh, we need to make sure we provide really good service and really culturally aligned service, both from a sales and a service perspective. So in terms of outsourcing from a contact center perspective, how, how we look at it, look at it is how, how difficult is it for the customers to switch and how hard is it for the sale and how important is it to be culturally aligned with the person you're speaking to. So it really is a horses for courses uh, question. And in terms of, uh, so the other point to note is what, what you are seeing a lot of companies also do is not simply the contact center outsourcing is outsourcing other functions. For example, finance is really often outsourced to places like Sri Lanka and India who do an incredible job with finance. So even the big accounting firms and now the PwCs of this world are often outsourcing a lot of what they do to other regions. So it really is a, a horses for courses what is the function? Uh, what is the business? Making it, making a judgment based on that. Uh, in terms of how it should be structured, uh, I think from a tax perspective, it probably doesn't matter. This is really a cost center, not, not a revenue center. So where you tend to structure for tax purposes, and this is what a lot of the big companies do, is try and offshore revenue uh, as much as they can, which which is which tax offices like the ATO really frown upon. So uh, in terms of structuring, you, you kind of want your expenses running through your home jurisdiction. So if you're an Australian business, you want your overseas expenses still running through Australia. So it's tax deductible from an Australian P&L perspective. Uh, so hopefully that answers your question, uh, anonymous caller. Uh, great question, really topical question, given uh, what we're seeing in the market, given what we're seeing with the sort of remote working wave. So Adam, you mentioned the average salary or someone working in Australia and then someone working overseas is, is vastly different. Do those salaries, do you take those into account when you're kind of figuring out what the acquisition cost is for a new customer? Absolutely. So what, we, what you're looking at, so it's partly acquisition. So call it, what you're talking about is conversion. So if somebody's uh, costing you $100,000 a year, for, for example, and they're converting at 70%, uh, so that means seven in, every, seven in every 100 people who calls, you're making a sale. And let's say your average sales... $2,000 and that person's bringing in a million dollars a month. So they're sort of bringing in, in terms of margin, upwards of a couple hundred grand a month and you're converting at 70% versus 30% or you're making $100,000 more from that person. It's definitely worth paying an extra $5,000 a month for them. So mm. it depends on the product and depends on the role. So if you're talking about a customer service role, there's such a great temptation to move customer service offshore because you're not making a sale. You're not losing that conversion, that revenue. What you are potentially losing if the customer has a bet, and, and let's make it clear, sometimes offshore contact centers do an incredible job and, and actually a better job than local. So it's not always the case that someone offshore is doing a worse job. Uh, but let's just assume that someone in your home country uh, is, is more likely to be culturally attuned to, to you. So it could be someone in the Philippines serving a Filipino customer. You could actually be better off than someone in Australia serving a Filipino customer. So uh, this is not a criticism of, of offshoring at all because there's lots of benefits to it as well as outside the cost. But let's just assume that culturally there is a benefit. We take a, a long-term view for service and that we want our customers to have a great experience throughout this 
pre-purchase, post-purchase, during travel, post-travel. So, and we know each customer has a cost. So, uh, say our average cost, customer cost, cost, cost of acquisitions is $300, for example. It doesn't make sense for us to save a few dollars on the service if we might lose that customer because we haven't provided them an incredible service. So, it really comes down to how sticky are your customers and then what your conversion rate differences between local and offshore from the sales perspective. So there's a, there's a few um, nuances. We did the sums and for us, it just made commercial sense from a conversion and from a customer retention perspective to keep everything in the local country. That could be India, India contact center working with Indians, Australia working with Australia, US working with US, uh, rather than outsourcing to a, a region that even though it costs us $30,000, $40,000 less per year, it actually may, makes it far less financially viable for us. To, to do it that way. But really it's dependent on the business. If it's a really low value transaction, high high level of stickiness, your banks, your, your power companies, it does make a lot more sense to send it offshore. So it really does depend on the business. But yeah, what you're asking is exactly right. What is the, not simply the cost, but what's the entire life cycle of that transaction is what you're looking at. G'day, this is Craig from Beverage. Um, I just want to know your advice on the timing of the market and if there's a good time to buy or a bad time to buy and how to best read that. Craig from Be- Beverage. Where's Beverage, Ed? Do you know where Beverage is? I don't is? know. Should I Sounds look it up? Sounds familiar. Maybe get the Melways out. I don't know if you were born when Melways was still around. But I was. Let's do this live. So, Crow, while, while Ed looks up where, where beverage is, if it, if it actually is a place, uh, really good question, Craig. We've seen some, uh, for, for I think long-term listeners of the show, and I'm, a, I'm what's called a bear on public market. So I think that, that start, certainly in the last, really the last 15 years, oh, we've got a result. Just north of Craigie Burn. Beautiful. It's actually pretty close to Melbourne where, where we are in, in listener HQ down here. Uh, so... What should we do about the market? So markets have been trending up really since 2008. So if you look at, there was, there was a, if you look even back further, from 1993 to 2000, markets slowly increased. Then there was a big, uh, what we call a dot-com crash in 2000 and everything sort of went down, recovered 2007. There was something called GFC, the global financial crisis. Everything crashed again. And we had this period of uh, strong recovery led by really low interest rates. So central banks around the world kept cutting interest rates for seven or eight years or even, or even 10 years. And every time um, banks cut interest rates, share prices historically went up. And there's a really direct relationship there. Now, what, also, what central banks also did was something called quantitative easing. So essentially, and it's not exactly this, but essentially if you think of it as printing money, and they don't actually print money, they, they do it digitally. But what they do is create excess liquidity in the financial system. And that excess liquidity goes to, the, really the richest people in the world. So really, you heard the rich getting richer. That's what happens when you do quantitative easing or, or money printing or, or inflationary uh, periods. So rich got richer over 10 years. That money got invested into, into shares. And what happened was companies weren't necessarily making much more money. They're making a little bit more money. But what essentially happened is what you, ha- what you have is called uh, multiple expansion. So every share has what's called a price earnings multiple. There's, there's lots of other things. There's price sales multiples. There's there's different kind of multiples, price earnings multiples, that classic multiple that, that market watchers use. So if you've got a price earnings multiple of 10, that means in 10 years time, you earn enough to double the share price essentially. Uh, so imagine a, a yield of 10% or a yield's not the right word because you don't pay out in full. But uh, so what essentially happened was we, we saw a P expansion from probably 15 or 16 back in 08 to 
high twenties by by uh, by the time by, by pretty much last year, and we saw a little dip uh, in the beginning of COVID, and then shares roared back as as central banks around the world created excess liquidity and printed effectively printed lots and lots of money. That money was didn't materialize in consumer inflation like it has more recently. It, we saw it in in asset inflation, so we saw it in house prices going up pretty much all around the Western world. But Australia was really at the epicenter of that, and along with places like Hong Kong and California. And we also saw, saw it in share price appreciation. And there's a couple of uh, really important long-term uh, metrics that you can look at. One's called the Cape Schiller Index, uh, and there's a few other ones. And what these, what the Cape Schiller Index did is um, founded by a guy called Bob Schiller, who was one of the guys who predicted the global financial crisis and the dot-com crash. And that looks at uh, how much companies earned over the past year, 10 years, adjusted it for inflation and give you a, a long-term price earnings uh, multiple. And what we saw that, that we expanded to basically record levels by late last year. I actually wrote an article last November saying the markets have never been so expensive. And this is when the markets were almost, the Australian market was almost hitting sort of 8,000 uh, points uh, on the S&P two, on the S&P 200. The US market was at record levels. Pretty much every market, every, almost, it was called the everything bubble because almost every asset, be it NFTs, crypto, you remember um, Bitcoin hit 64,000 around that time in, in US dollars. Almost every asset, used cars, property, was at record highs, simply because there's so much liquidity sloshing around. And eventually, due to multiple factors, Ukraine war was one, but there were other factors that that it started spilling over into consumer inflation. So nobody, well, nobody really cared when the inflation was materialising and stuff like shares and and property, because whilst the rich people were getting richer, the people who was costing anybody who doesn't own these assets was getting poorer, but probably didn't really realise it. But when you start paying double as much for used cars, when you paying, start paying $25,000 to take a flight to the US, when you start paying more for your for your bread and your milk, suddenly you actually start noticing it. When that happens, governments start panicking because they might get voted out. And that's what caused central banks around the world to start lifting interest rates. And the US, I think, were one of the first. Uh, there were some random economies that had higher interest rates like Brazil and Turkey, and New Zealand started raising them pretty, uh, pretty early as well. But most countries, US, UK, Australia, only started raising rates really in the last five or six months. And they really panic because inflation in the US has almost hit 10%. UK is over 10%. Australia is almost hit 7%. And this is pretty high. Uh, so banks have rushed to stop quantitative easing. They started quantitative tightening, which is taking liquidity out of the market and, in, and raising interest rates at the same time. So it's been a double hit. So what that's happened is two things. One, you've seen property markets really quickly start to correct. So instead of, instead of FOMO, fear of missing out, you're seeing fear of getting in because what you don't want to be left with is, is an asset that's really quickly lost 20% of value, especially when often you only have 20% of equity in there. And you've seen the same thing in share markets, which move move even more quickly. So share markets around the world have probably dropped about 20 to 25% off their highs. Some have dropped more, some have dropped less. That's been really widespread. And you've really seen it, especially in the, in the tech sector, because the tech sector was so massively overpriced. You had companies trading on, you have Atlassian trading on a, a price to sales, forgetting price to earnings, price to sales multiple of almost 40 times. They have no earnings, so they have no real earnings. So they don't have a PE. So you had these absurd valuations, both in the private and public market. So it was really inevitable that, that well, certainly I thought this last year, that was inevitable that the markets would come down. But what's really hard to know is when they will, because there's an old saying that the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So it's really hard to pick when a market will drop. But pretty much every indicator said it will drop. So, so Craig, you're right. The market it is a bit like catching a falling knife, and it's really hard to know when the market will stop dropping. And usually, when everybody like loses complete hope and is disconsolate, that's when it's probably time to buy. I don't think we've, um, and this is an investment advice to, to be sure, but I don't think we've got to that point. 
Uh, there still is a little bit of optimism in the air. There's hope that inflation will recede soon, and, and very well it might. There's what, so what's really guiding this is, and what will guide asset prices, be it shares, be it property, be it NFTs, be it crypto, be it whatever, is, is interest rates. And the reason being is when interest rates are 0%, 1%, anything looks like a good investment. So if you're getting a, a 2% in the bank compared to 0%, it's, it's great. But if, you, if, you, if you're infl- you've got an inflation rate of 8% and you're only getting 2% in the bank, you're losing 6% of your money or losing a little bit less of your money. So, so what, what's really the prevailing factor here is what's happening with interest rates. And what happens in interest rates is really dependent on what happens to inflation. So in determining what are you going to do in the market, you need to try and work out what's going to happen with inflation. And so we've had, and it's really interesting now. So you've, you've had this period where all this money has gone into the market and it's caused some infl- caused asset inflation and now consumer inflation. What we're seeing is actually the opposite now, but it hasn't been played through. So there's a couple of factors at play. So gas, you've heard about high gas prices. So gas price in Germany is actually back to where they were six months ago. So uh, we've seen gas prices drop. We've seen oil prices drop significantly. We've seen price of things like lumber. So timber, which is one of the first things to go up, is now back to where it was pre-GFC. You've seen uh, stuff like shipping costs drop right back. I read an article today about how uh, US have 65% excess inventory. So all the indicators are actually saying interest rates have made an immediate effect, probably because everybody's so leveraged now in that usually you need to have interest rates 2 to 3% above the inflation rate to have an impact, which is what happened in the early 80s. So you... you History tells us you need interest rates of 10% to drop inflation. But because everybody's so leveraged now, and because we've seen this unusual impact of supply shocks from Ukraine, things seem to be unwinding pretty quickly. So the one exception, though, is in the labor market. Labor market is still incredibly tight. So labor costs are really high. Lots of wage rises coming through. Unemployment's basically, in real terms, zero. So that is really tight. But what we are seeing is lots of input costs, lots of supply chains are being fixed now. So a lot of the impacts we had last year is really being improved. So it's a, it's a really tough question. Uh, I'm not, I'm generally not a great buyer of public equities, but it's certainly looking a lot less bad than it was six months ago. Markets have definitely normalized. So it's looking a hell of a lot better, but it still is to, to your, use your point, Craig, a bit of a falling knife. You are battling still pretty high inflation and still some pretty high inflationary expectations. So what I like to do is wait till I see the markets really turned. Uh, and when you see inflation really starting to come down, interest rates having an effect, then it's probably time to, to start looking to, to expand your portfolio again. Because there still is some pretty expensive stuff out there. Uh, tech stocks, even though they've dropped a hell of a lot, are still really expensive on a traditional price to earnings, EBITDA, multiple perspective. So uh, I think you really got to be careful on what you buy. Be willing to lose money in this market because, yeah, you've got some really great upside. If you bought in in March 2008, you would have made an incredible return, but you had a lot of risk at that time. So be willing to lose money uh, now because it is a really volatile time in the market. So really great question. Great that you're looking at investing, Craig. It's certainly a great way to expand your wealth and, and make money passively, but, but and also asking the right questions. It is now the right time because ultimately timing the market is super important. Uh, there is a, uh, I think the saying that uh, in the long term, stocks go up. That just clearly isn't right. What is really important is if you buy and sell at the right time and you don't constantly trade. But if you were to buy Japanese shares in 1989, you're still down 60, 70% 30 years on. So time in the market is super important. Don't buy when the market's at record highs like it was last November. It's clearly adjusted a lot. Uh, whether now's the right time, well, that's really up to your risk, uh, your risk tolerance. But uh, there are still lots of risks floating around. Inflation is looking a lot better, but it's far from solved yet. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, 
please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Hold up. 